to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. When you read about especially the the very ancient world, there is some concern about their accuracy. And what we, I think, as Christians, a lot of times we fail to realize is that the Bible, as far as a historical document, is the most accurate and provable and testable of all of the ancient documents that exist. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis, chapters 10 through 12, in a message titled, God and the Nations. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Genesis chapter 10. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The 10th and the 11th chapters of Genesis are composed of genealogies of nations and peoples designed to link the story of Noah and the flood with the story of Abraham and his descendants, which fills the remainder of the book of Genesis. The genealogies begin with Noah's three sons. We just read their names here. And move eventually to Terah, who was the father of Abraham. At two points in between, there are parentheses. The first deals with the founding of the first world empire under Nimrod. The second parenthesis is the story of the attempt of the people to unite in defiance of God and to establish an alternative system of worship. And of course, we're told in the story how God thwarted their efforts on that. That's the story of the Tower of Babel, which we will get to here this evening. But in looking at the 10th chapter, the 10th chapter is referred to as the Table of Nations. And it is a remarkable historical document. A generation ago, it was common for the highly critical scholars to deny its reliability and worth. Yet today, even the most hostile critics are inclined to acknowledge its extraordinary importance and accuracy. The renowned archeologist, W.F. Albright, he wrote this concerning this 10th chapter of Genesis. He said, the 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel. Even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in genealogical framework, the table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Now, 
we probably, most of us don't realize how significant that is in regard to supporting the historical accuracy of the Bible. You know, we, of course, uh, have heard about history. We've studied history in school. Most of us did. And some have gone beyond that and maybe spend their time reading histories of different periods and so forth. And, you know, so often we take for granted that the things that we're reading are accurate and true, and much of it is. But the, the sources from which those seeming facts are derived are, are very few and far between. And when you read about, especially the, the very ancient world, when you read about the, the Sumerian Empire, when you read about the early Egyptian Empire, you know, a lot of the dependency is on historians who lived closer to that period. And there is some concern about their accuracy. And what we, I think, as Christians, a lot of times we fail to realize is that the Bible, as far as a historical document, is the most accurate and provable and testable of all of the ancient documents that exist. And so as Albright said, and interestingly to me, Albright made that statement early on in his career as an archeologist. He was rather liberal in the early days and he became very, very conservative as the years passed because he found that through archeology, span everything the Bible said was actually true. And this brought him more and more into the conviction that the Bible was the most historically re reliable document of antiquity. It was W.F. Albright who said that Luke was a first-rate historian of which there is no close second. So we can have total confidence in the historical accuracy of the things that are written here. Now, in this 10th chapter, and we're not gonna read through every verse, I wanna just highlight a few things here, particularly looking at the sons of each of Noah's children, beginning with Japheth, and then just sort of just briefly following them out to where they would spread out to geographically. So in verse two, we read, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, or Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Now, Japheth's family, and of course, this is a generalization. Obviously, some would have, you know, stayed in a certain location. But, but for the most part, the descendants of Japheth, from, from the record here, they moved out both eastward and westward from what we would know today as Iraq, from Babylon. And in going eastward, they went into Persia and then down into India. You know, if you're familiar with the study of languages at all, there are different language groups and there is the, what is known as the Indo-European peoples, 
but the Indo-European people are connected by a common language. And you find these common threads in the language going both toward Persia, down to India, and then westward over into Europe, northward up into Russia, across over into North America, and eventually into South America. So the descendants of Japheth made their way ultimately into all of those places and became the nations of those various parts of the world. The Greeks were descendants of Japheth. If you here tonight have a European heritage, you are a descendant of Japheth. From Japheth, we go next to Ham. And in verse 6, we read, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Now, the descendants of Ham, they were the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. When God would send Moses or Joshua ultimately into the land of Canaan, they were to drive out the Canaanites, remember? Now, they were the descendants of Ham. But the descendants of Ham spread also throughout parts of Mesopotamia. But the ancient name for Egypt is this name right here, Mizraim. That is, that is the ancient name for Egypt. So Canaan, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and then south into the African continent, and then east to, to the far east. So the family of Ham spread out far and wide going directly south, probably all the way down maybe as far as the tip of Africa, but then over, all the way over into the land of China and that region there. We come thirdly to Shem. And from, from this point on, Japheth and Ham are going to, to fade into the background and the emphasis will be on the line of Shem because Shem, of course, is the messianic line. So in verse 22, we are told the sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, or Faxed, Lud, and Aram. Now, the Elamites would eventually join together with other peoples, and they would become the, the Persian Empire. Ashur would become Assyria. Aram would be where we get the, the word Aramaic would be derived from Aram. And the Shemites, the family of Shem, as far as geographically, they stayed for the most part in that region itself, in the, the Mesopotamian region, in the area of the Middle East. So the peoples of Syria and what we would know today as Iraq, and also the people of the Arabian Peninsula, 
those people would have been all the descendants of Shem, and still many of them are to this very day. Now, there's a couple of things here in regard to Shem that I think are worthy of noting. First of all, look in verse 21. It says, And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber seems to be, most scholars agree, the root from which the word Hebrew comes. The word Hebrew means to cross over. And so this is, according to the scholars, this is where the word comes from. It comes from the name of this man, Eber. The second thing to notice in verse 21 is the reference to Japheth. Notice here, it says, and the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother, speaking of Shem, Shem is the brother of Japheth, the elder. So this is interesting because when we read the order of the sons of Noah, we read the order Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But evidently, Japheth was actually the oldest. But Shem is always put first in order. And that is a common thing that that we find over and over again in the scriptures. God will put the most important one in regard to to redemptive history. He will generally put the most important one Uh, putting their name first, not necessarily referring to them in their birth order. That's an important thing to know when you're going through the Bible. And when we come to Abraham, it's an important thing to know because the assumption when we read about Abraham is that Abraham was the oldest son of Terah. But again, if you look at some of the some of the different years that are spoken of, you get into a bit of a mathematical problem if you think of Abraham as being the oldest son of Terah. If he's not the oldest son of Terah, it clears up that mathematical problem. But because he's listed first, the assumption is he's the oldest. But again, it's probably, I would say almost definitely not the case. Just like with Shem, his name is listed first because of the spiritual priority. Now, one more name here that I want to draw to your attention. Verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Just on a side note, Joktan, all of the descendants of Joktan, you find them geographically moving into what we know today as the Arab world, Arabia. But Peleg, Notice what it says about him. It says, for in his days, the earth was divided. Now, what does that mean? In his days, the earth was divided. There are actually maybe more, but I've read of three different theories. Theory number one is that in the days of Peleg, God gave a revelation to some person and um, the revelation consisted of how the nations were to be uh, divided up, how the, the... how the land across the earth was to be allotted to the various families of Noah. That's one idea. Another idea is that in the time of Peleg, there was some sort of a catastrophic kind of a thing that resulted in 
what we know now as continental divide, that still at the time after the flood, the earth mass was all together. And then in the time of Peleg, the earth was divided in that there was some event, some earthquake or something that took place that began to move the continents in the direction that the geologists say that, you know, they've been going slowly for a long time, that they've all separated. Some people say that that is what is being referred to here. And then thirdly, that the division that's being spoken of here is the division that came as a result of God confusing the languages at Babel and dispersing the people throughout the world. I personally vote for number three. I think it's the most reasonable one. And uh, of course, it's in the context that is, uh, seems to me, what is being said. So it was in the days of Peleg that this judgment came upon the people that we'll read about a bit later that resulted in their, the earth being divided up because of the language issue. But before we move into chapter 11, I want you to go back with me to verse eight here in chapter 10. And let's take a moment and read about Nimrod. Verse eight says, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kelne in the land of Shinar. Nimrod seems to have been the first despot. It seems like that is what is being spoken of here. Donald Gray Barnhouse was so convinced that that was indeed the idea that's being communicated here that he sort of reworded the verses in Genesis to read in the way that he really thought they should read more accurately. Let me read to you what he, how he presented it. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord, and the homeland of his empire was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelne in the land of Shinar. Now, when... The, the text here refers to Nimrod as being a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Many Hebrew scholars say that the hunting there is not referring to hunting as we would normally think of it, but that he was a hunter of men or he was a conqueror of men. And so what the Bible seems to be describing here with Nimrod and with his kingdom is the first in a series of empires that would exclude God and oppress men. Now, of course, this has been the story of almost every kingdom the world has ever known. I said almost, not everyone, but almost everyone. And this picture, which I think it is a picture as well as a historical fact, this picture will find its final expression in the kingdom of the Antichrist of whom Nimrod is a type. 
So remember last time we talked about the, the different types in Scripture. We talked about the ark being a type of Christ, Noah being a type of Christ. And I think you could legitimately say that Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist or, or any of those that would have opposed God throughout the history. But ultimately, this person that we refer to as the Antichrist. Now, moving into chapter 11, there's one thing we need to understand right up front when we come to chapter 11. Chapter 11 chronologically precedes chapter 10. And it's not of vital importance, but I think it's one of those things that's good to know because, you know, skeptics are always looking for some basis to criticize the Bible and they would certainly try to take advantage of this. But the dividing of the nations that we have been looking at here in chapter 10 resulted from the dispersion at Babel. So the events of chapter 11 actually precede chapter 10. So in a sense, the writer, Moses, he you know, tells us about the various nations and, and where the sons of Noah ended up, the direction they ended up going in. But then he comes back and he gives us the detail about how that dividing that we read about with Peleg, how that actually happened. And so, verse one of chapter 11, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Literally, it's one lip. So it seems that not only a, uh, one language, but really just one dialect. Everybody spoke exactly the same language, it seems. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shiner and they dwelt there. Now, stop for just a second. When we were talking about Noah and we were talking about the ark and we, we talked very briefly about the resting place of the ark being Mount Ararat. And it's interesting that there is the traditional Mount Ararat where there is a monastery that was built and many people for a long, long time have been convinced that that is the Mount Ararat of the Bible. And there have been expeditions that have gone to that region and you know, sought to see whether or not there's an ark. There have been people that have actually come back and said that they touched it or they photographed it or, or something like that. But you know, it's an interesting thing that Mount Ararat that we know of today in the mountains of Turkey might not be the Ararat that the Bible is talking about. There's four places in the Bible where Ararat is mentioned. And it's interesting when you start looking at those four scriptural references, the area that the scripture refers to Ararat is not the area that we think of today, which, as I said, is in Turkey, in the area of Armenia. But the, the biblical references would lead you to a place that's actually in what is today Iran. For the month of October, 
Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Progress, Kindness, and Equality by Glenn Scrivener. Do you recoil at the ancient practice of slavery in the Bible? Do you value modern-day freedom and equality? Do you abhor the mistreatment of minorities by some in the Christian church? If you answered yes to just one of these questions, or even all of them, then chances are you have unknowingly inherited the biblical notions of redemption, freedom, equality, and compassion. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener argues that Christianity has been infused into Western culture so thoroughly that its values are simply taken for granted, and their Christian origins have gone unnoticed. No matter what you believe regarding the existence of God, this book will help you understand some of the values you cherish most. The book, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality by Glenn Scrivener is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.